0: I plan to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Lord, I was called Ditch Digger Man, aiming for a living and doing the best I can. Discovered entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. And I became the CEO, man. Are you ready
1: to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger, CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who'll be telling their amazing, rags-to-riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires, many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school and with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years have generated over 1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this, if you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you wanna be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and from many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. So we did not get enough out of my buddy, Robert. And uh, when we were, we were all done with him, man, we had a lot of good stuff. But we wanted yeah, I, more. I should be called a uh, masochism CEO. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted more out of you, buddy. Because I know, I know a lot of, enough about you. Well, never enough about you. But I know a lot about you. And, and there's a lot of a lot of stories, a lot of things to be told still. So we wanted to get you back on and uh, and round out, uh, you know, who Robert Blackwell is, and, and talk a little more about, uh, about you. Uh, Robbie Robbie had some good questions, and I answered a few. So I'll, I'll start out with Robbie. Welcome again to our, our episode of Dishinger CEO. We got my buddy Robert with us here today, and uh, to to round out an amazing podcast that we're doing, with Robert. Robert, welcome, buddy. Again. glad to be here
2: yeah thanks here, for
1: being here We're here in the middle of the, the coronavirus uh the the about thirty forty fifty sixty days of uh of shutdown and uh we're all we're all bit, based out of our own places right now and uh a little different than last time we talked It's amazing what can happen in a few day, in a few weeks right That's right and uh, hopefully
3: you know i uh See, you ought to see a little prayer for those people who've been really affected both health-wise and uh, economically.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. They better be in our prayers every night for sure because there's a lot too much of that going on. Rob, you want to start it off, buddy? Yeah, absolutely. Robert, thanks again for joining us. Um, Happy to be here. Second time's the charm. We got
4: confidence in that. <laughs> Hopefully I'll be better this time. <laughs> no, you were great the first time. Uh, So last time I know we talked quite a bit about your up um, being one of the first African-American families in the Chicagoland area, uh, and it led you to have a better broad perspective on humanity. So I guess I'm just, just to get a better understanding of the way in which that you view the most effective approach to getting more equal access to opportunity for individuals of all backgrounds. Uh, whether that's within a corporation or just in the early childhood educational uh, realm as we think towards the future here?
3: Well, um, I happen to to believe that there's nothing new. (laughs) So you could go back in history and you can look at how do people go from poverty to prosperity? Because I think there's nowhere in the world where poor people are healthy, educated, and safe. And conversely, nowhere in the world are affluent people not healthy, educated, and safe, regardless of their color or anything like that. Obviously, Michael Jordan is black, and Michael Jordan is better off than 99.9999% of people of any color in the world. Uh, He did that because he had a, obviously, he had a skill, and he had personality, and People started buying a lot of the stuff that bore his name or his number or things like that. So if you look at how people go from poverty to prosperity, it is entrepreneurial-led economic activity that leads to the appreciation of education and social capital. Social capital is when you reach back and you pull other people along from your community typically and when you create an aspirational roadmap for your young people. The challenge that you have in the black community, in my view, is that nobody does business with blacks. And too often, I think people look at blacks like children as opposed to an adult. So if you look at, for instance, all the the charity, you would say things like, we're gonna have an inner city kids program. Well, what that means is it's a little black kid program. So what happens is there's all this charity that's directed at little kids. But what happens when they get to be 15, 16, 17, 19, 20, 25, 30, so on, there's nothing for them anymore. You have a, an infrastructure of minority business programs where those things were intended, I think at the time, in the 1960s when they first came about, there were people, I believe, of goodwill, that worked and put those programs together so that blacks could participate in the economy because they had been left out of the economy. It wasn't accidental, it was purposeful being left out of the economy. But what's happened is that blacks never really participated in that. And blacks are at the bottom of economic participation, even in the minority programs. People who are born outside the United States get more money from minority programs than blacks do. So why most people would think blacks get all the benefit from these minority programs, set-aside programs, that we actually don't. Uh, so what happens is if you don't have economic activity, you fall into poverty. And uh, when you're in poverty, lots and lots of bad things happen. You can look at the beginning of the last, in the last century, the immigrant communities that came to this country, the Eastern European Jewish community, the Irish community, the Italian community. They went from poverty to prosperity in really about a generation and a half. Same thing for, for Asians. Now, why is it that blacks couldn't go through the same? progress. They were obviously legal barriers that were put in the way of blacks. And when those came about, after the excuse me, the civil rights uh, laws came about in the nineteen sixties, you still had the issue of the lack of economic participation. So in my view, this is the big problem that we have. So the outcome of this, in my view, of the in the black community, is that all the economic proof points are in entertainment. It's, it's singers, it's musicians, it's actors, it's athletes, it's people like that. In fact, you ought to try this experiment. Name two famous black entrepreneurs that don't have anything to do with entertainment. I've asked this question a thousand times and nobody's ever been able to answer it. So therefore, what does, what is the market saying to black kids? Place your bet on entertainment. It takes as much effort to be a professional athlete as it does to be a computer programmer, to be in finance, to be an entrepreneur. It takes a lot of work. And you understand that you have to compete against other people. But the market is telling them this is where you, place, you have to place your bet. That's why there's no good guy programs. Or government programs to teach black kids how to play basketball, to be musicians. There's no good guy programs to teach Dominican kids to play baseball or Brazilian kids to play soccer. The market tells them that's where you place your bet. So I used to be when there was boxing. After Joe first, there was Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson became uh, right heavy, first black heavyweight champion. Lots of Blacks go into boxing. Joe Louis becomes heavyweight champion. Sends market signals, go into boxing. Sugar Ray Lewis, Muhammad Ali, on through the line. So you see the kids saying, this is where to place my bet. Their families reinforce that. They have their own ecosystems that support that. So my view is then, how do we get everybody to participate in the free enterprise system because I think that if we don't, we can lose it. Young people have a fascination with socialism because they think it means social good, which it doesn't. It means government control over your decision making. So I think business, in my view, big businesses, in my view, are the worst. They have these false minority business programs and they talk about diversity, but don't do anything meaningful. In fact, they do things in my view that are quite shameful. Like I'll give you an example. If you take a, let's say a big delivery company that owns planes, uh, they wanna get credit for minority business programs. So what they'll do is they'll go to somebody they're gonna buy a lot of fuel from, say we wanna buy $100 million worth of fuel from you. But let's be corporate good guys, and we will buy, we want you to sell us $100 million worth of fuel from this black company. Okay, they'll make $250,000 on a $100 million deal, right, which is equivalent to one FTE. So, this is really what happens and why blacks are so far behind. In fact, this, here's some numbers, actually, from the census, because I did that study on this, if you took all the revenues of companies in the U.S., that were majority-owned companies, with an employees, it would have been 9.4 trillion, women a trillion, Asians 455 billion, Hispanics 276 billion, and Blacks 98 billion. As I say, a lot of that 98 billion is a pass-through number. Now, people would say, well, what about education? Well, Blacks, in that case, have double the educational achievement of Hispanics. So education is not a leader. You can get educated in a lot of stuff that doesn't pay you, doesn't pay you anything. So in my view, we as a country, especially now, have to make sure that we protect the free enterprise system by making sure that those people that have capabilities get to participate in it and then exchange opportunity to responsibility for bringing somebody else along and that way, I think in a generation we will fix a lot of the mess that we've made. That was a long winded answer to your question. I'm not sure if sure you answered me the question.
4: No, it definitely answers the question, but it, <laughs> I, I'm glad that you supported it with uh, the census information. I, I think that provides a unique perspective on it. Uh, and I, I think going back to that first conversation towards the end, I know Gary had mentioned the idea that he was partnering with other CEOs in the Chicagoland area about the equivalent of an MBA program to understand the ins and outs of business. And you were coming at it from a different lens in terms of access to opportunity uh, down the road. Uh, so with that in mind, you, you mentioned you don't think it's the education system. I know that you had an opposing... No, it's
3: not that there's not an issue with the education system. There are obviously issues with our, with our education system. However, in my view, people respond to the incentives in their environment. Like, I'll give you another example. Have you ever gotten an email that said, my uncle was a general. He left me $100 million. Uh, can I give me your bank account information so I can transfer the money to you and I'll share it with you? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about?
2: Yeah. You
3: know what well, yeah. These are... Teenage kids in Nigeria. These are teenage kids in Nigeria that have had to learn how to read, write, and reason. They did it because there's a very strong economic incentive. Now, unfortunately, it's a perverse one because it's criminal and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's immoral. But what they've had to do in order to prepare themselves for that is to focus on their education and i would bet you people in uh nigeria would die for the any educational opportunity that somebody in the united states has so the thing is what are the incentives economies are based on cons- incentives and constraints that is what an economy is based on it's incentives constraints alternatives and interdependencies So. What are the incentives for you to put in 10,000 hours of work, right? If you were, for me, right, if I want to be uh, a cellist, right, I'm, I'm too late for that. You know, that wasn't my talent. So you have, the market tells you where to place your bet. And it has to be the case. That is why you would have to say there is no physical reason why somebody born in the United
2: States couldn't be a world-class soccer player. But there are none. (laughs) There are no
3: American Ronaldos or whatever the other guy from Argentina's name is, I can't remember, or David Beckham or any of those guys. Why is that? It is absolutely not a physical restraint. I'm sure that if Bo Jackson had been born in Africa or Europe or someplace, he could have been a great soccer player. He would have been a great soccer player instead of a great football player and baseball player. So there is a tie between economics and preparation
2: for the opportunities in the economy.
1: So what, what uh, when you, when you look at uh, entrepreneurial opportunities and, and the opportunities you had or I had, right compared to? the lack of opportunities these kids in the in, in, in urban environments have, um, it, it, there's, there's a lot missing there, right? There's, there's inspiration or aspiration that they don't, they don't see uh, a, lot of, a lot of examples of people in business uh, having the success those athletes on TV have, right? And, and in their communities, there's, there's nobody they can reach out and touch that have had that type of success uh, in, in business. When, you know, when, for you as a young guy, you, you saw some, something somewhere, somebody, Explain, explain that, you know, what you saw to, to inspire you to be a, a, a guy that leads in business and, and, and innovates and, and discovers, you know, all different opportunities in business. Well, I would say it was
3: a combination of good luck, uh, mostly good luck. I have two great parents, uh, right? I had nothing to do with that. I was lucky to be the oldest. So when I was born, my father was 23 and my mother was 20. So, you know, I'd say they were so broke, they couldn't pay attention. They had no money. And that was an advantage for me because my parents gave me essentially a set of rules that if I followed, I could do whatever I wanted.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, you know, if I did my best in school, which, you know, I was a horrible student for most of my life until I was 16 years old. Uh, I just didn't really pay attention, but I was always into making money. I could walk around and pick up Coke bottles and pick it in for the, uh, you know, the nickel they would give you. I would sell uh-huh. them in school. Uh, it was always thinking about how to make money because one is my parents didn't have a lot of money to give me, and I just found freedom in that. And the other thing, I never liked people telling me what to do. It just I never wanted to be either dependent on somebody or people telling me what to do. So, you know, my parents said, as long as you're in this house, you have to do what I say. So when I was 17, uh, I was out of school. (laughs) I say goodbye. In fact, my father said, what are you still doing here? Uh, So I was lucky to have parents of great character that gave me freedom and that they didn't have any money. So I had to figure things out myself. Uh, and also I would say I was lucky enough to have a little bit of a mathematical brain. Um, in fact, every, my whole brain works in numbers. Um, in fact, it's funny. I wrote a, uh, when, I was, when I was 24, I wrote a book on trading theory and I gave it to my father to read. And my father said, well, I got two things to tell you. He said, uh, "Number one, you don't know how to write." And number two, he said, "Do you know what the difference between being weird and eccentric is?" He said, "When you get to be rich, you'll be eccentric. <laughs> right now, you're weird."
2: <laughs> uh,
3: but I, uh, I was always pretty mathematical, and I, I'd say. Also, I really believe that God put me on this earth to do something other than just entertain myself. So, I would say just being lucky, having some skill in math and being willing to sleep on the floor, if I didn't, you know, if I didn't have anything. So, I'm really not a person that cares a lot about stuff or what people think. I care about being fair but I don't really care what people think about me. Mm-hmm. You know, to me it's, I'm not asking you anything about your life. If I can help you, great. But you know, the fact, if you don't like the way that I eat or the fact that I don't go out or do other stuff or that I work from four in the morning to 11, doesn't make any difference to me.
2: Yeah.
1: So, so tell, us, tell us about the, the, the businesses you're in and you know, the, the technology business and the, and the ping pong business. And- the opportunities it's given you, these businesses and entrepreneurial uh, life that you've created. Go, tell us about the opportunities you've had to to, to discover cool things, meet meet uh, people you'd never be able you would never be able to meet without it. Uh, you know, show you know, give opportunity to people that uh, so that that worked out to be you know great opportunity for you to see other people do well within your vision, right? Tell us a little about that, that kind of stuff.
3: Well, I've been lucky. I've had a a number of businesses and been involved. Uh, I I would call myself um, kind of a little impatient misfit. Uh, So I really like discovering, and the things that are, uh, I'd say, most important to me in the world is just being number one in the world at something. That's always what's driven me. And remember when I was young, my father told me, He said told me a couple piece of piece of advice that I really took to heart he said um, he said if I give a hundred percent I may not be the best but I'll be in the top 5% and he said the only thing in life you have is your reputation you can always get money back but you can never really get your reputation back so those things I would say really drove me so I've always been a little bit of, I'd say, a little bit of an oddball. Uh, you know, people think I'm a little bit on the um, Asperger spectrum, maybe. Uh, because I think my brain works a little bit differently. I mean, it's really mathematical. Um, but I would say I've been lucky enough to be in business and meet lots of, really lots of very interesting people. Um, met some people I would say when I was young and that when I was young I was really a radical and in fact I remember when I my family grew up in segregation so we lived in an all-black neighborhood until I was 12 years old so the first time we actually lived around whites uh, a neighbor asked me I think I was 12 years old she asked me what do you want to do when you grow up and I was in Topeka, Kansas I said, I want to be a Black Panther. And she freaked out and, <laughs> and called my mother and stuff like that. Uh, so I would say I got a chance to meet somebody, one of the original Black Panthers, a guy named Stokely, called Carmichael. Uh, and I was so, I was unimpressed on, by one thing, but then impressed by another. I would say he was very anti-American during his days uh, as a Black Panther, but he had gone to Algeria, he'd left, and then he came back with a very different perspective. And I remember hearing him talk about, talk about that. Um, when me and my father uh, had a company together, this would have been from 92 to 95, we started a company and then i sold him my half of the company. He was reading the paper one day and he said, "Hey, you know there's this young guy who's the first black editor of the Harvard Law Review. We should meet him." So we called him up and we met him. He came to meet us. And obviously this is uh this is Barack Obama. And him and i became really really good friends even though I would say he's left handed and I'm right handed. So you can figure that out politically, <laughs> but I still uh, have a lot of love for him and his family, even though we may not agree on some things politically, but that matter. I don't agree with a lot of stuff with my own father, and my parents, but I love them the same. Um, so I got to be really good friends uh, with him and I saw the journey Of something happened that I think almost nobody in my generation would believe what would happen is that we would have a black president not just a black president a black president with no money uh, with an Arabic name Um, which that whole journey was I would say especially when he became senator because I was there from kind of when he was Running in 95 and then became senator and obviously I was there when he gave that famous speech in 2004 I was I Was standing maybe 15 feet away. Um, I Said that uh, And I I just told Brock I was really proud of him and this is something that's historic that I think is really going to be Really good for the country. I frankly remember I had a friend from Europe, and I told him in 2003, Barack was going to be president. And he said, no, no chance that's going to happen. I said, you're going to see, he's going to be president. In, so 2000, was, in
1: 2003, what, what was he doing in 2003? He was running for Senate in
3: 2003. He became
2: senator in 2004. U.S. Senate. U.S. Senate. He was a state senator. Right. So
3: there's that. Uh... We did something, it was, you know, in 2016 and got a chance to talk to the Pope around, you know, table tennis and some of the things that were going on. But I met a lot of great business people in the world. And I would tell you that people that I most enjoy talking to are Uber drivers. I find them much more interesting than CEOs typically uh, because you can just see these are people who are taking advantages of opportunities that they're presented. And to me, this is really the power of the free enterprise system and property rights. They have a car, in fact, I stopped, Uh, I got rid of my car uh, and started taking Uber because black people drive Uber. And I said, these are really hardworking people. They have their property. I need a ride. They got a ride. Uber sits in the middle, and they all seem to be thankful of the economic opportunity. They were all really good people, just trying to take care of their families. Um, so there's that. I've got a, I had a chance to meet a guy named Aliko Dangote, who is, he's the richest man in Africa. Well, he was until recently worth $20 billion. Uh, I got to take a tour of, uh, of Nigeria. And I met, uh, as part of the tour, I met Aliko and some of the Nigerian CEOs. And I remember I went there with a friend of mine, two friends of mine. And it was, I would say, almost a religious
2: experience for me. And the other guys with me as well because the first time in our lives we had seen
3: a black person say i'm going to invest a billion dollars here i'm going to invest a billion dollars here," and he was talking about his money and how he was dedicated to making his country better and we had never experienced anything like that ever I went to, I got a chance to go to Senegal. Uh, I got invited to go on a tour of Senegal and I saw a place called Gori Island where it's the westernmost tip of Africa where the slaves, it was kind of a launching place for the slaves. And obviously that was kind of an emotional experience, but I got to see and meet African people who were just really good people. In fact. I've been to, I don't know how many countries in the world, 40-some countries in the world. And what you see is that most people are pretty much just the same. They love their kids the same. They want the same type of things. They may eat differently. They may, you know, have different religions or things. But they tend to just, I mean, be humans and care about the things that we care about. They love their parents and they love their kids and, you know, their wives yell at them, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so I would say I've got really good friends all over the world and people from all types of economic backgrounds. So I don't really get impressed by people's wealth and just get impressed by people's character.
2: I love it. Uh, any,
1: any, uh did uh were you offered any positions in, in the white house at all or no you can be in front of the um I, I would say the,
3: the nobody is going to offer a libertarian a role in government
1: i don't know about that a good friend of mine is a libertarian and he's an advisor to this president which one steve moore oh that's right yeah
3: yeah yeah okay so well the answer is it's uh
1: not many though you're right not there's, there's
3: there's not many of them um and plus I, I i don't think that i could be in government because if you're not a customer i kind of don't want you telling me what to do
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> sure. and so yeah i would say you don't have to be in politics to have an influence on direct, of the direction of the company of a country part
1: were you, did you get invited to the White House when Brock was the president? Yeah, we had
3: lunch. I had lunch in his office, and I've been there a few times, and so, yes.
2: Cool. That would be a great experience.
3: Oh, less to me, it was no big deal. It's an old, it's an, it's an old house. It's like a museum, and it's just me kind of talking to my friend, and most of it was, how you doing? How's Michelle and the kids doing? You know, everything okay? Good to see you. hope you're not too stressed. Let's keep in touch every once in a while.
4: That was it.
2: Uh, and you, was do you, to him? Him.
4: Do you I, talk to him? Oh, so go ahead, Robbie. Sorry. I was just saying it was probably refreshing for him to have a conversation like that. Well, you know, listen, I
3: didn't want to ask him. There's nothing for me to ask him. I just want to be his friend. Say, man, how you're doing? Right? Everybody's trying to angle at what they can get from you and you're dealing with probably stuff on a daily basis that none of us would want to know about. Um, right. People getting killed and kidnapped and threats to the country. And you imagine that all day long, every day. Um, sometimes you just, you know, Hey man, how you doing? I'm doing good.
2: Thanks for glad to see you. That, that was, that was it. Right. Well, cool. Have you, have you remained friends with him
1: after
3: the fact? Yeah, i listen periodically. But, you know, look, Brock is now the most famous guy in the world. Uh, you know, he's probably one of the three most famous people on earth. Sure. Uh, so I don't really communicate with him that much. If he comes to Chicago or something, you know, and I'm here and he's there, I'll probably say hello to him. But, you know, I'm just not a celebrity chaser. Listen, I, I love him and his family and I wish him well. And... uh He's a guy, a great character, and I, like I said, I wish him well. But
1: and did he did he respect your conservative views or your liberty? I should say liberty. I, yeah,
3: listen, views. I think uh, Brock is the same as me. Um, Brock, I don't think you have to be believe everything that he believes politically to be his friend. First of course I not. Think he believes what he believes, and you know, it's like what I, like what Kennedy said to Khrushchev. You know. You're not gonna make me a communist, and I'm not gonna make you uh, you know uh, a, a capitalist. Let's move on <laughs> yeah so yeah, Barack has his beliefs and he he believes it, and you know he's a smart man we're the same age. he doesn't need me yelling in his ear. he's not gonna do anything. <laughs> his opinions right. have been formed
1: and so but is, it, but is it was it fun to give him a little bit of a little bit of uh you know Friendly, uh, friendly object- objectivity.
3: No, listen, I purposely don't want to talk to him about politics. I don't want to talk to him about politics. I just want to be his friend. His politics all day long, all day long, obviously he's involved in politics again right now. Uh, he doesn't, he's not interested in that for me. Like, to be honest with you, there are people that like Bernie I'm not
1: interested in. You're a pretty astute dude, though, when it comes to free enterprise and the, and the beginnings of it and the value of it and the danger of communism. I mean, you're, you're, a, you're a really well-versed uh, guy with that stuff. You would have thought that, I would have thought that you would have challenged your buddy a little bit. In some, in some no, listen, and to be honest with you, like,
3: like, like I said, it, I'm not, I, could have a, I could have a conversation with Bernie, I'm not going to change Bernie's mind at sure. all. And he's no. not going to change my mind at all. So, you know, I've never met him, you know, if I ever met him, I'd be polite, say, how are you? But the idea that I'm going to waste my time or his time arguing about free enterprise versus the dangers of socialism, uh, (laughs) you know what I mean? That, that, that hole up here is closed.
1: (laughs) But if there's a debate you can have on stage with, with, uh, with Bernie, wouldn't that be fun? Oh, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might change some minds. Change, change your mind, some minds around you, right? That'd be fun.
3: Oh, listen, I actually that that
1: would be that would be fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell, tell us about uh, Killer Spin. That's a cool yeah. company. It's really really fun to uh, watch what you've done with that. Tell us about that.
3: So Killer Spin is a. I started it because I used to be a trader. And what I thought was, this was in 2002, I'd been a trader in, in the 80s, and I was there during the crash. So that was funny. I was actually a technical analyst, and I knew we were going to have a crash. Uh, so I saw the, kind of that whole thing out. I mean, I, I, I was there when the 87 crash happened. I was on the floor. I would say the, it was the closest thing I can imagine to a typhoon. It was not a typhoon, or what do you call it? A, uh, the tidal, you know, tidal wave. It was just something unbelievable, a tsunami. That's the word I'm looking for, thanks. Uh, So I remember the experience, and since I studied the trading of history, people get, you can start to recognize patterns, and people get, the time to worry is when everybody is riding high. The time to be brave is when everybody's panicked. That's what I think, like the role of a CEO. As a CEO, you need to be worried when everybody's asking you for a bunch of money and to spend a bunch of money on stuff and isn't life so good? Uh, that's a time where you ought to be a little bit cautious. And the time where everybody's panicked and freaking out, that's the time where you need to that's a time of opportunity. You need to tell people calm down, especially if you have to calm yourself down
2: mm-hmm. and
3: get past the fear. Um, so with Spin, and so in 2000, Chicago had something called the Ping Pong Festival. I said, we don't have any relationships in the public sector. I think the stock market's going to crash. We should diversify into the public sector. So we sponsored something called the Ping Pong Festival. And the ping-pong festival uh, was something a woman named Lois Weisberg, who's the head of cultural affairs, had. And she put 300 tables out all across the city. We were a sponsor. And then she asked me to be the chairman of the ping-pong festival, which I did. And whenever there were tables around, there was always just lines of people to play. So I started to get what I call this entrepreneurial itch, I <laughs> would I call it? I said, there's something there. You know, everybody in the world knows table tennis, but nobody can name a, the name of a brand. Therefore, there's a space there. If we can build a brand around that, and we can make table tennis beautiful, then what we can do is we can create a great brand in a category that's commoditized. So we started Killer Spin and we started off being a media company so we produced the we produced these big events uh and we ended up being a partner with espn so we had done things that nobody had ever done previously in the sport and then we got really quickly known around the world because i think people that like table tennis wanted table tennis to get the same respect that other sports guy. In fact, in, uh, in 2001, when I decided I was going to start, I was going to start Killer Spin, and I was going to create this event, I, I wanted to see if I could have the best players in the world come and be a part of this event. Now, nothing like this had ever happened in the United States. So, I actually went to China, and I got a meeting with the head of their Olympic Committee. And I said, I showed him a video. I said, this is my vision for what table tennis can be. Would you participate in this event? It's the 30 year anniversary of ping pong diplomacy. Would you come and participate in this event? Now, this was kind of like getting Jerry Reinsdorf to send the Bulls to my basketball tournament when Michael Jordan was there. But he did it, Uh, and we did it and it was successful. And we had really changed the presentation of table tennis in the world. So it was about, the company was about helping people to connect with the people that they love and that they need their love through table tennis. Now the company now is about what I call unplug and play, which is about connecting with people you love and they need your love through. We call break time play. So any kind of play that you can do around break time, What the company does is it facilitates that connectivity because one of the things I think that's coming out of this COVID thing is people now have, I would say in some way, retrogressed 30 years where people ate breakfast together, you know, they went to work or school and then they ate dinner together. I think that is something that's been lost on lots of people. Um, and I think people are going to have to feel now the importance of human connection, because I think we've been in this technology out days for a while, where people are confusing efficient communication with human relationships. Relationships are something that happen in person. So imagine you're in a jail cell and you have everything you want in a jail cell, you got a computer, you can communicate with anybody you want, you got a refrigerator, you got your exercise equipment, you can do whatever you want, but you're locked up in that jail cell. Void of human contact. You soon will go, you will become mentally ill. And that's what happens in jail, right? People go into solitary confinement, they become mentally ill, Not because there's any disease inside there. It's because they're devoid. Humans are social animals. They need people. They need other people in order to be healthy. So on the other side, this is one of the challenges. It's also going to come out of this COVID crisis. Those people that don't have families and everything, the isolation is going to start to create some mental challenges for people. So what Killer Spin is all about is helping people connect, again, to the people that they love and that need their love through play. And when I started playing is that's what I did with my father. Me and my father would play together. And it turns out that I used, to, I used to tell a story why, uh, you know, I have these memories of my, me and my father playing. And uh, I said, well, this is how I knew my father loved me until he corrected me. <laughs> You say, oh, well, I got to tell you the real story. Say, so the real story is um, I was, my father's again 23 years older than me, so I'm a teenager. He's in his 30s, he's focused on his career. And my mother said to him, I know you're focused on your career and you're busy, but don't forget you have a son. So don't be a bum and spend time with your son. So, not wanting to make my mother mad. <laughs> He gave in and bought a table tennis table and that's what me and my father did together and then that's what me and my friends did together. So almost everybody has these memories of them playing table tennis with somebody and mm-hmm. usually it is somebody that you care about.
2: How, how's business been and, and,
1: uh, during this uh, this shutdown and all that? How, how's business been for you? Well, actually it's
3: uh it's we're, we're, we're surviving we're kind of doing well because people need activities in their home the corporate part of the business is, is totally shut down obviously but uh, the home business has is it's holding its own it's doing it's doing well
1: where do you sell? Like, where do you sell killer spin online is it's it all, only online only online
3: yes so most of our sales are either through our own website or through Amazon the high-end things we sell ourselves, and Amazon sells most of the low-end things.
1: And what, what, uh, what do you feel, is there anything you've done innovatively to change the industry, or to, to push the industry to a different place? I, the, your, your brand is awesome. Um, was there anything else you've been able to do in, in quality of equipment, technology?
3: Well, we decided that we were not going to be a technology company. There are, there's, there are companies that are technology companies. And what they focus on is, let's call it performance equipment for people where, where, let's say golf or tennis or table tennis in this case, is their primary sport. That's the thing that they like to do most. So it would be, there, are, there is a table tennis equivalent of Head, of Wilson, of Spalding. Those are just, in our view, manufacturers of equipment. Killerspin's a totally different company. What we are focused on is making table tennis beautiful. Beautiful equipment, beautiful experiences. So everything to us is about beautiful and picking a space where we can be number one in the world. In so we created the the, uh, designer category. We created the media category. Um, We created, you know, when we started, we focused on promoting women, which nobody had ever done, where... Now, 70% of the people that play are men. Uh, but we said we're going to go really against the grain because I believe in business. The only thing that protects margin is differentiation. If you're not differentiated, you will be a commodity really fast. So brand and differentiation is the key, in my view, to having a business that has margin.
4: Yeah, that makes sense. And part of what uh, we were actually chatting about prior to jumping on the call today is uh, Chris uh, had realized that you have a formula for decision making. <laughs> yes, I, I'd be curious just to learn a little bit more about that and uh, how you've applied that into
2: Killer Spend specifically.
3: Okay, so uh, that is true. So I have actually, I wrote another weird book lately uh, on, on algorithms. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a quantitative method for doing decision-making in digital, what I call digital capability portfolios. It's kind of using the same math that quantitative traders use, but applied to digital investments. But this is the formula we use, is that results equals the quality of strategy plus execution divided by time. So you always start with specifically what you wanna get accomplished. You create a strategy that makes you unique and loved, loved as entrusted in a category by a customer. You create an efficient execution engine, which are people, processes, tools, and facilities, and then you set a time frame, because there's a there's an inverse relationship between results and time. Which is, by the way, that is why time is money.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: So that is the. Uh, that is the, the high level of the, the equation. There's, there's more to it, but that, that's the high level
4: Right, and do you have a specific use case in mind or example that? Everything, we,
3: anything we do has to
4: fit that formula. Really? So, in with Killer
3: Spin, we have something called an innovation lens. So before we take anything to market, There are like eight steps that we go through before we take anything to market. And off the top of my head, one of them is, does this involve what we call skill, thrill, or chill? uh, Is it involve learning or uh, equipment? Is it, does it create excitement, that's a thrill? Or is it chill, does it create some kind of mental relaxation or rejuvenation? does it fit our economic model will it create aspiration or a memory with our customers or employees does it solve an emotional or financial problem can we do it better than anybody else in the world uh so we have this these very strict um let's say criteria that is related to our innovation engine excuse me and innovation is all ways about, to me, it's creating some source of value, new value, aligned to revenue, cost, risk, or service quality. So we are pretty algorithmic, I would say, in all the decisions
2: that... Say
1: that, say that, say that again, Robert. Okay, so that,
3: to me, innovation is about creating in value in one of four categories. Revenue, cost, risk, and service quality. So revenue and service quality, obviously you get your money, that is related to stakeholder experience. The experiences of your customers are what determine your, the revenue side of the equation. What you keep relates to what I call lean operations. And that's the mitigation of risk and the management of cost. And you do that by understanding all the components of cost. So there's a bunch of geeky math. <laughs> I'm, at, I'm happy to send you. I'm afraid I'd bore you with it. Uh, that involves a bunch of Greek letters: delta, alpha, gamma, theta, uh,
1: all kinds of stuff. <laughs> that makes great sense. What and what are what are the core? What are the values that you guys live by? Anything? Is it just? Uh... Is it verbal? Is it written? Do you you practice your values? I
3: I would say the values of the company are where we want to be a place where the most talented people in our profession want to work. And we're a trusted partner to our customers. That's the core. So not to do anything that if it was in the newspaper, you would be embarrassed by it because I think that if you don't have good character, people with good character won't come to work with you. And no company can grow, to me, faster than its ability to attract the right kind of people and where you have customers that you can create an emotional connection with. And I would say phoniness comes through. Employees can tell, customers can tell, So in my view, it's also being about something bigger than yourself without, you know, I'd say some corny stuff that people talk about that they don't really mean, it's just marketing. So for us, one of the things that we're gonna be doing, uh, rolling out is an agent program. And we're gonna ask people that if you're gonna buy from us anyway, please consider buying from one of our agents those agents are going to be young people with special needs. Because what happens with young people with special needs is after they become 22 and they have to leave high school and these programs, there's nothing for them. So as a parent, and I actually have a daughter with autism, what you're concerned about is, I would say, the opportunities and the dignity of your child once they get out of, you know, out of school in that kind of protective cocoon. So we're trying to make sure that they have employment and entrepreneurial opportunities. And we think that if we can be, if we can do that and we can be impactful, maybe some other people will copy us and these young people will have opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. The other thing that also I try to do is to go find young people and help them start in in business. People that have, I think, some entrepreneurial capability, but they need some mentorship. They need some people that will be hard on them because, listen, business is hard. Not that you're going to be nasty to them, but you're just not going to accept anything that's less than being world class. And that's what, I, that's what I say to people that uh, we try to be helpful to. I'm willing to help you because, obviously, people help me. Uh, But if you're not willing to be world-class, to figure out what it takes to be world-class and to put in the effort to be world-class, you may not be world-class today. If you're 26 or 27 or 28 or 30, it is unlikely that you're gonna be world-class today unless you're an athlete. But in business, that's gonna take time. But if you're not willing to commit yourself to the journey, I'm just gonna go find somebody else who is.
1: I, I love it. I love it Rob. I, I say exactly the same thing to my team. I said if any business we're in, if we can't strive to be world class with the goal of being world class, right, and, and then, then we want to be there. So I mean if it's, if it's a business we get that we get, uh, we get into that becomes a very commoditized business that we can't differentiate from, probably not the place we want to be very long, right? If, if, yeah. if any business we're in, we want to try we want to strive to be different and better than the competition in any way we can and, and with the goal of being world class. When, and, you know, when people say what's world class, I mean, some people mistaken that as being the number one best of the best in the world at one, one thing. And hey, that's, that's, that's a great goal. But being world class, in my opinion, is being, being one of the you know, top 1%, in my opinion, in the industry you're in uh, still, and still striving to be number one. And I think that uh, you can reach that goal, kind of like you said, top 5%, top 1% in your space. You're going you're gonna to have uh, a lot of fun. You're going to be successful. And you're going to create a lot of opportunity. Um, and when you, when you look at your business, you know what do you feel you're in the top one percent in? Killer spin to me seems like you got.
3: I it. would say that in the areas where we focus, we are number one in the world. We're sure we we know about that. We created the designer category. We're number one in the world in that. When we first created the media category, like we know, one of our YouTube clips had seventeen and a half million views. That was number one in the world by far. The educational series we had was number one in the world.
1: What well, was that clip that gave us 17 and a half million views? I am sorry. Type, what type of clip was that? that you gave know, it was a million. competition clip that we had.
3: We had an event uh, at a place called Mohegan Sun, which is a casino outside of it's in Connecticut. And they actually wanted us to do a Tableton is event to entertain what they call their Asian whales, because if you're in the gambling business. Chinese these are really important customers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the uh, ESPN uh, filmed it, and we put this clip on YouTube. So I know in the areas where we're number one in the world. In fact, if we don't have the chance to be number one in the world, but it's a necessary product, we're trying, we try to push it to free, so that we include it in an offering. And in fact, we're, we have what I call a lanyap strategy, I don't know if you've heard of the, the word lanyap. No. You, you ever see, uh, there was, used to be a TV show called The Cajun Cook. I don't know if you saw that. But lanyap is a French word or maybe a Cajun word, and it means a little extra. It's the equivalent of a baker's dozen. You know, a baker's dozen is 13. The yep. Do- 13 donuts or whatever it is. So you know, it's just a little extra. That's kind of it's a surprise that creates a connection with a customer.
2: Mm-hmm. Cool. How do you spell that? Oh wow! Uh, it, it's definitely not phonetic.
3: <laughs> uh, hold on a second. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you right now. You mean L-A-N-I-A-K? No, 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 no. It's not anything like that. L-A-N, Yeah. It's L-A-G-N-I-A-P-P-E.
2: Yeah, I would have never gotten
4: there. <laughs> yeah,
3: in fact, if you type L-A-N-Y-A-P, it will
2: come up. <laughs> cool. I like that word. It's awesome. What else you got for him, Robbie?
4: <clears throat> well, I, I think that what I'm always curious about just being a futurist by by heart and inherently in me, Uh, i'm interested in knowing i guess your future road roadmap for potentially new entrepreneurial endeavors or uh adding a third company onto your resume here
3: (laughs) well there's two things uh i am looking at changing the company uh so eki digital is a company where we've been kind of successful helping large organizations I would say, find financial opportunity. Uh, we've helped companies identify billions of dollars in efficiencies and we call revenue, cost, risk, and service quality. Uh, we kind of a, have an algorithmic approach to doing that. So I've, the last month I've been writing a, uh, it's almost like a, it's a combination of a new business plan, and it's been in my head for a while. And uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Academic paper on using the quantitative method for discovering opportunities, and we call these digital capability portfolios. So it's essentially saying you can use their companies like Citadel uh, like, there's a company called Renaissance, Renaissance, Renaissance Technologies, pardon me, that was started by a mathematician called uh, Jim Simons. He's the most successful investor in history. He was a mathematician uh, and he started the company in his late 40s. And after he takes his 5% Admin fee plus his forty-four percent of earnings. His customers have he's returned thirty-eight percent per year to his customers. What? what? Yes. You have to look them up. There's a really good book. It is called uh, "The Man That Solved the Markets." It is about quantitative. There's something called the quants in trading, and what they're doing is they. In fact, I wrote an article called "Algorithms and the Death of IT." where it shows a corollary between what happened in the trading world, where there's no more floors anymore, there's no more trading floors really anymore. It's all computing, it's all computers now, and what's gonna happen in IT. So I believe that all systems are natural systems, and you can use math to discover things that, even why people make certain decisions. Even politics in this, I've even created a, a factor in this uh, formula. I would say for politics in organizations, it is <laughs> associated with all kinds of stuff, risk factors associated politics,
1: with politics. Don't, politics don't work well in organizations, doesn't, and it doesn't really work. No, well,
3: actually, unfortunately, politics is a very big part of organization because if you think about politics as individual incentives people have and people behave based on the incentives and constraints in their environment so this is why for instance in our industry and technology a company let's say you've got a cio and they know they've got to make a hundred million dollar investment in order to deliver some big new system or something like that they have two two alternatives they could use ibm IBM is going to cost them hundred million dollars plus, you know, it's probably going to go over by 50% or they could come and work with EKI digital and we'll say, we'll do it for 70. Now, if it was just math, we would be the obvious choice. However, if that CIO knows that there's risk
2: and you say to him, this thing blew up. Why did you hire that little company? That was
3: his decision. If he hires IBM, it's like, I hired IBM. That's the way the world works. People will go and do things to avoid personal risk. That is a part of, of companies, and people do it all the time.
1: Business is an mean, in. Mean, though. No, we, need, we, need, we constantly focus on eliminating politics within business to where. You know, there's accountability, you take risk and you and you and you learn from the mistakes you make. And and you know, you, we, we expect people to be accountable, but yet you know take risks. We we trust you take risks, you will lose and, and, and fail once in a while. We're, hopefully we're we'll gonna learn from the failures, as long as they're you know, they're 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 measured, they're 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 not they're not killer failures, right? We 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 can't I can't stand when 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 politics uh, are installed in mid-sized businesses.
3: Well, it, like I said, it's, it's everywhere. You can't avoid it. However, the, this is what the importance of culture. To me, you have only three things in business. You have stakeholder experiences, right? What you take to market and who you, how you treat your customers. You have lean operations, which is not making money, not wasting money in the delivery of your products and services your, to your customers. And then you have culture because culture spreads both toxins and nutrients throughout your organization. If you have a culture of discipline, not a culture of toxicity, but a culture of discipline where people know how to make decisions, not that it's just some, I said, random bunch of guesswork, but you have a framework of decision-making. So if you follow the decision-making, by the way, you cannot do experimentation without failure, and you can't make progress without experimentation. So therefore, you need to have, in my view, we have what I call an innovation budget. An innovation budget is where you don't exactly know what the, you cannot guarantee the outcome, but you use, let's say, the scientific method to work your way through to new offerings or new solutions and understanding that it's not going to be perfect the first time, but you're, at least you're using more of a scientific, a scientific method as a part of your innovation process. And too often people don't do that. They're undisciplined. And when you're undisciplined, you bad things start to happen in your culture. You start to blame shift and have fights and be protective over territory because you have a toxic culture.
4: Can you repeat that first part? So it was the experimentation uh, with you can't have without failure. What was you the? You You cannot
3: have experimentation without failure. You can't. You can't do it. You have to go through a process. You create a hypothesis, or something is based on a framework that you've established. In our case, we have an innovation lens. So. One of the things in our innovation lens is, the customer has to be able to enjoy this within 20 minutes of receiving this product. So if somebody comes up with an idea and there's, the customer has to put together 100 different parts, it may look beautiful, but if it takes them two hours to put together, you shouldn't have made that decision. You should have known better in the first place then you're being intellectually lazy versus going through an experiment, you didn't quite get what you want, because sometimes you'll learn if you go through experiments, disciplined experimentation, that's aligned to your innovation engine, you may learn things that you can use in another process or another product. It is not always going to be, experimentation. experimentation's not always gonna be perfect, but if you don't do experimentation, you become commoditized very mm-hmm. fast because you don't have the ability to invent and all you can do is copy. And if you're copying, then automatically you're, you're using a commoditized product or process. Commoditization is fine when it comes to lean operations, right? You don't need to reinvent everything right you can use best practices or things like that the customers don't reward you for that they reward you for variation of offerings in you know let's say your product offerings but the fact is if you can buy a piece of software that you can live with like you i'm sure you use word nobody's going to go in which a programmer could come up with an alternative for word but that would be a waste of effort in an area where you're not going to get any value. So that is the difference between stakeholder experience that should have a high degree of variability, which requires experimentation and innovation, versus lean operations, where you want to have a very low amount of variability. You're trying to eliminate waste.
1: Yeah, and in, in innovation at any point, like, as you're saying, you're gonna fail, you're gonna fail often if you if you're Going outside the box and you're and you're trying to swim away from from commoditization, right? I mean, you're you're gonna try things that are different, and you're gonna fail. And with the failures, you're gonna learn a little more, and eventually, you're gonna you're gonna hopefully be in a place to do some things different than your competition. And that, and we we, you know, we do that consistently with all of our businesses. And um, it costs money to do that, but if, if you have your customers' ear and your customers' trust, um, you can do that a lot. And and, and partner with your customers, you'll build strong relationships with your customers. As you're building new products and innovation, so I I, I agree 100. percent I mean, and in, in a in a political organization, it's tough to do that because everybody's about covering their butt, and and uh, they're they're not t- in my opinion they're not they're not taking the accountability and, and, and because they they're worried about their jobs, right? So um, I I think you know small small businesses, mid-sized businesses have the ability to do that. Large
2: large businesses sometimes uh, get political and don't have the ability to do that.
3: Yeah, you're smarter than than me, Gary. That's why I'm on this side of the camera, and you no, no. To go.
1: I'm not. I'm not. I just. I'm not. I just believe in innovation. I believe in experiment experimenting and partnering with my partnering with my best customers. And and I, I think I see our bigger you know bigger competitors, bigger customers in my space, uh, bigger bigger competition in my space. Let's say, don't usually do that. They don't take. They they look at that as too high a risk. Um, with without enough reward because it costs money to do that, right? But sure. when, when, you're, when you do that stuff with your customers, you build better relationships with your customers. They can take ownership in the innovation Innovation also, which is really fun. So. But, Robbie, what else you got for our buddy here? He's, yeah, he's uh, gonna, got a lot of information, man.
4: I'm going to take my last question one step further. So, I guess in, in thinking through the next phases, which seems to be more aligned with EKI, Uh Do you think that traditional computing power is going to be enough to capture in every variable that you want? Or have you looked into the potential for quantum computing in that?
3: Uh, Look, I I think there's a difference between between quantitative analysis and quantum computing. Uh, My own view, there is already sufficient computing power for most businesses. Most businesses are not lacking computing power. You know, maybe Fermilab needs quantum computing or, you know, people in medicine or something like that. But for most businesses, they, they don't have a computing problem, power problem. What they have is an architecture problem. They have a lack of architecture. What I would say when it comes to investing in, in IT, IT is is just, digital is an asset just like any other asset class. It should work the same way. If you were going to build a road or a bridge or a building or anything like that, what you would do is somebody with a need would say, hey, I've got, there's an opportunity. What's the opportunity worth? I'm going to create an opportunity profile, an investment opportunity profile. That investment profile set. here's what the benefit, here's what the investment's going to be, here's a roadmap to capturing it. It gets presented to typically an investment committee. They make the the decision on whether or not they're going to invest in it. Once they do, then it goes to a design-build manager. The design-build manager is responsible for creating a blueprint, that gets presented to the customer, which is a visualization of what the ecosystem looks like or the final product looks like at completion. Then they can give the same set of plans, which has different parts, to the carpenters, to the plumbers, to the electricians, to the steel guys, to anybody, to the furniture people. So everybody has a completed visualization of what this ecosystem looks like at completion. Then the design build partner decides, hey, this is the best trade for this, there's the best trade for that, there's the best guy to do this, and they manage it through completion. I've never met a CEO yet that has ever seen anything like the equivalent of a blueprint for how technology is gonna serve their company. Not one that's a simple one that's on a piece of paper. You don't have to be an architect to be able to look at a drawing And say oh I get it that's what that building is going to look like right okay you may not understand all the you know the load calculations and stuff like that they're embedded in there but you can get a sense of what the the thing is going to look like at completion I've never met a CEO that has ever had anybody presented a blueprint this is the role of technology and helping us make the work of delivering our services to our stakeholders more efficient. And by the way, that is the only thing technology can do for you. Right. So people make bets on technology without, it's like saying, hey, I need a building. Let me go throw up a building. Well, what's a building going to look like? What are the needs of the stakeholders who are involved in this? Can I see what it's going to look like in advance? Uh, what are all the components of cost in delivering that? It's very immature. It's a very immature industry. So it's very fragmented.
1: In so, Robert, my view. You, you've been around algorithms a long time, and before algorithms were really, you know, something to be talked about. And what, 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 is it, what are the algorithms of yesterday have in common with you know, AI of today? I mean, is it where it began? Or tell me about that, week? Well, the,
3: listen, people have time. to understand what AI means. All that is AI, artificial intelligence, means algorithmic opportunity identification somebody comes up with a set of algorithms that go into a set of data and discover opportunity in fact this if this ai really came out of my view of the financial industry and the whole trading world because what traders do is they determine what the value what the theoretical value of an instrument is at a particular period of time. Let's say it's an option. I've got an option on the S&P 500. I'm gonna buy a call or or a put. So without getting too deep into that, you can calculate the theoretical price of that option based on where the market is, things that are happening in the market, Mm -hmm. how close to expiration are. In fact, it's very much like insurance. Insurance is totally algorithmic. It's just a measurement of risk. And the relationship between you and your insurance company is the same risk between in a financial market, a hedger and a speculator. What you're doing is you are paying a premium to an insurance company to offset your risk. Right? If I get into a car accident, I could be injured and I could get millions of dollars of injury to somebody else or myself. So I'm going to pay my premium to offset my risk. Now, the insurance companies have to be able to calculate a portfolio of risk to determine what your premium is. Sure. If you are a, and it's the same thing, if there are factors that go into that. If you're a 16-year-old male, your insurance is going to be a lot more expensive than you, if you are a 45-year-old mother.
1: Unless you're buying term life insurance.
3: No, Now, in that case, if you're buying term life insurance, the opposite is the case. Right? right? If you're 65, your term life insurance is going to be a lot more expensive than if you're 25.
1: Exactly. I, I bought uh, life insurance when I was 16 because, my, because uh, somebody told me I should. I think it was like a thirty thousand dollar policy. It was a big deal because I didn't know if I'd ever be worth thirty thousand dollars, right? And uh, and then recently, at 56 or well, I just turned 57. Uh, I, I'm buying you know a bunch of life insurance again, and I've done it you know over my life, you know different times. And, uh, boy, you better, you better get all life insurance you can while you're young because it gets kind of expensive. Uh, yeah, exactly. To me, it. that,
3: those, it's the same thing. Those are just algorithms. And, by the way, yeah. algorithms are not new. This all is right. why I think there's nothing new under the sun.
1: So, so in our business where we, you know, in one of our businesses that Robbie was a big part of is, is uh, you know, a site where we do the, the drone, uh, drone assessments of real estate all over the country as well as now uh, cell towers and easements and all kinds of stuff they're doing. Um, you know, we're trying to put that in a world where we're using AI to do a lot of the repetitive work, right? Repetitive engineering and repetitive uh, assessment. And uh, once we get there, it's going to be a really inexpensive product. It'll be a fun, fun product uh, to, to continue to grow. It'll probably be a SaaS product in the long run. But uh, yeah. we need we need help on that side of it, Just leadership when it comes to technology and understanding you know, how we build that AI. If you if you got any, if anybody out there, you got anybody out there you know that's strong. In building AI like that, let me. Well, help. listen,
3: I'm uh, I'm happy to I'm happy to help you. I'm, I have no value on this earth except for algorithms. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, well, you know what, hey, Robbie, we got to connect him with Austin and, uh, and the team there. And just, you. It happens to be pretty valuable at
4: this point in time, so oh.
1: I take the position
4: pretty well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sounds like maybe a possible board member there, Robbie.
4: Yeah. That
1: listen, uh, anything I can do for. For
3: Superman, there I'm
1: your guy. Yeah, yeah, you're funny. Are, are you on any boards at all, Robert, or no?
3: Yeah, I'm on the board of uh, the U board at US Bank, and I'm on the board of uh, Chamber of Commerce and some other Business Leadership Council and. Uh, how, about,
1: how about any uh, startups or business boards, like uh, you know, small business or businesses that need advisory board guys?
3: Uh, if somebody, I, I tend to be to help people when they need. Help, and I just kind of like that, you know. It's because you know I feel that I've been extraordinarily lucky, and obviously, you know, people help me. And you know, when I was twenty and had thought I knew more than I did, people they took my meetings, and you probably when I had left, they were laughing, but you know, <laughs> they made themselves accessible. I mean, I think about myself when I was twenty-one; uh, I would have probably not been as kind as they were to me.
1: So, so I, I get about five more minutes left, but you know, again, mentorship. Your your mom and dad were amazing mentors in, in your life and business. Uh, right. I think you mentioned somebody back last time. We're you're, you're rounded up, rounded up again. Your dad. You're, you know, when it comes to business and oh my uh, god, a lot, lot of people. Actually, my, my my
3: my parents' number. My parents. Um, there was a guy named Earl Neal. He was a lawyer here in Chicago, and he went out of his way. To help, especially kind of young black entrepreneurs uh, from my generation. Uh, and he would make himself available and just be helpful and give you guidance and not ask for anything. Um, I would say he was a mentor of mine, but you can also get mentorship by reading.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. I have,
3: uh, I probably have on my little iPhone. Uh, 100 books that I've listened to, 150 podcasts, uh, you can get mentorship just
1: by reading, listening, watching. Sure, sure, no doubt. No doubt about it. Well, hey, I, I, uh, I got a little more out of this orange in just time. We'll probably have to have another time, Rob, Robbie. This guy's awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate our friendship, and I want to get to know as your buddy, as a buddy for the last 50 years of our lives. We know we've we both got about 50 years left, right? I'm with so, you, man. So, uh, yeah, I want to do more stuff with you. So, I appreciate your time, man. Thanks for that.
4: It's good. It's good. Uh, is, uh,
1: Robbie, get out of what, what nuggets did Robbie, Robbie get out of this? That's all I want to know.
4: Yeah, Robert, so we usually like to summarize some of the takeaways and share them from all parts of the conversation. Uh, so, first one that I got today was uh, give 100% to be in the top 5%.
2: And
4: the way that I look at that is that hard work often is difficult to teach, but if you're able to instill that in uh, an individual's personality, uh, you have the potential to become world class. And I think Robert's a a perfect example of that. Uh, The second is that uh, reputation precedes you, uh, and it's one of the few things in life that you don't have complete control over. So you need to make sure you live with uh, high standards of yourself. Uh, both from an integrity standpoint, just as well as leading back to the first point is making sure that you're devoted to demanding excellence of yourself. The third here is don't be impressed by wealth, be impressed by character. Uh, And I think that applies to almost every facet of life and business, but specifically I think to an HR process. I think there's elements to hiring and recruiting the right talent. And ultimately what you need to hire for is the right culture and personality. Uh, that facilitates the growth of the business. And the next one was actually unique, super unique, in my opinion, which was worry when everyone is riding high and be brave when people are panicking. Uh, And I think that obviously we're recognizing the impact of that right now, and it's ultra top of mind for everybody. But at the end of the day, there's a ton of validity behind that. And uh, as we move forward, it's something Gary, you and I should continue to think more about. And
2: yeah,
1: absolutely that's part of part of what we talk about. Complacency kills. And as a leader, you, you, you want to be on top of th- thing when things are really good, you want to be on top of how you invest in in, in being different and stronger and world class as, as Robert said, right? And and when you when, when things are tough, you gotta to rise up and it's time to rise up and lead and be bold then, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And
1: one of the unique area
4: here in the next uh, takeaway for me was that in order to identify a space to innovate uh, is to have an internal conversation with yourself if you believe there's a brand name uh, or loyalty, and uh, in specifically in relation here to you realizing that Killer Spin had a, an awesome opportunity to innovate within the ping pong industry. I think for future or young entrepreneurs out there right now, it's an interesting takeaway when you are trying to assess an entire market landscape of potential entrepreneurial endeavors is uh, think to yourself what, what industries right now don't have any brand loyalty and how can you go in there and demand more value for your customers? Uh, And the last one is uh, you can't have experimentation without failure. And I think that if you're going to constantly innovate, improve, and, uh, take intelligent risks, then ultimately you need to make sure that you're willing to go the extra mile and especially with your end client in mind.
3: Uh, the last thing I would say is just uh, give advice to entrepreneurs. Live way before your means, below your means, excuse me. Live way below your means. There's going to be a tsunami coming that you can't see, a tornado, a hurricane, a flood, uh, financials, a stock market crash. You can't predict them, but you know they're going to happen. And if you're not prepared for them, you're going to get washed out to sea. So,
1: great point. Great point. When times are good, you tend to, you know, you can either continue to roll the dice, invest forward, and keep keep you know investing those profits forward, or or buying buying stuff for yourself, right? Or you can or you can put some of that aside and make sure you're ready for that ready for the next uh, coronavirus, right? Or, or, or whatever, whatever, whatever's gonna challenge your business, the next competitor that comes in and, and does stuff for nothing, whatever it is. So, great point. Robert, thanks a lot, man. You're Thank you, man, awesome. so good to talk to you. You're Thank awesome, you. really I appreciate your My best to the family. You too, buddy, appreciate your time today, and uh, great ep- what a great episode of Ditch Digger CEO with our buddy, Robert. Thank you, and uh, have an awesome day, buddy. Thank you, man, take care. See you, Stop. Robbie and Chris. Hey, you, buddy. You. Another great episode of Ditch Digger CEO. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, DitchDiggerCEO.com for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at CEO. And at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
0: Lord, I was called the Digger Man Aiming for living and doing the best I can Discovered entrepreneurship, scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man we're blessed to build a business in America Where soldiers fight for our freedom every day Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck Rolling down Highway 31 Lord, I was called Ditch of man I can Discovered entrepreneurship Scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man